what i believe is sometimes remoteness bring opportunities so in humla we have a opportunity to try something unique our natural world inspires and shapes us so it's more critical than ever that we work to protect it i'm alex honald professional rock climber and founder of the honald foundation and this is planet visionaries as a climber i've been fortunate enough to see both the beauty and fragility of our planet That's why I'm proud to be joining Rolex and the Washington Post Creative Group to bring you stories of inspiring people who are helping solve some of the most important conservation issues that we face today. On this episode, I get to speak with conservation biologist Rinzen Funzak-Lama, who's using community-based conservation as a means to preserve the biodiversity of northern Nepal. Hi, Rinzen. Nice to meet you. Hello Alex, thank you. And my name is Rinjin Punjoglama. I'm from Humla. It's in the northwest part of the Nepal. And so what's it like growing up there? It is the most remote area in Nepal. So far not connected to the national highway. If we have to walk uh, to the nearest town, it takes us uh, several days, at least uh, seven days, you know, to get to the city where the roads are. So, when you say remote, you mean really remote. <laughs> Quite remote, yes, quite remote. <laughs> like, for example, one of our research stations is about 32 kilometers from here. We usually walk, so it takes us one full day. Yeah, that's a, that is like a 20-mile hike through the mountains just to get to the field station. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a big walk. You know, describe the landscape. So Humla, more than 80% of the land is very rugged, and less than 1% of the land is suitable for farming. So uh, more than 50,000 of the people depends on less than 1% of the total area of Humla. for subsistence so livestock husbandry is also one of the key component uh, of the livelihood here but uh, apart from that the land is covered with rugged uh, hill slope mountains and things like that i guess all that to say i mean that, that's a lot of different reasons why it's difficult to live in humla but what is it that's that's beautiful about living in humla like what what has kept you coming back i mean because you you left for an education you've studied abroad you know what brought you back to humla what i believe is sometimes remoteness bring opportunities especially when it comes to biodiversity conservation and developing a one model of conservation where communities are very much engaged from the very beginning so in humla conservation is relatively new in the area so we have a opportunity to try something unique you know so so you think that humla presents a real opportunity to show a different approach to conservation It is we have lots to do you know like we are bringing something that is very new we are creating the biodiversity baseline data for the first time can you tell me about the biodiversity in humla like what what animals there are you know make the region special in terms of the mammalian diversity humla is one of the best landscape for high altitude wildlife especially mammals you know we have the ecosystem that goes from low temperate to upper temperate so the diversity flows like in the same way if we go down himalayan black bear in the forest leopard and as we climb up to there are like tibetan wolf gazelle himalayan marmot so it's quite diverse so really any exotic animal that i think of in in asia can be found in in the humla almost i mean you just named half the interesting animals on the continent we call it in nepal we call it the capital of highland wildlife In such a rugged place with so many different types of of wild animals, how do the local people manage the animals that they're herding? Human wildlife conflict is one of the key issues in conservation that we are trying to address. 
In case of Humla, we have a conflict from top to bottom, leopard, jackal, fox, small leopard, Himalayan wolf. So the community response is different in different areas. But with the small leopard, you know, being uh, one of the top uh, predator and being involved in most of the conflict, people have a relatively positive attitude. So this is something very interesting. And why is that? But just because people are proud of snow leopards because they're such a iconic species. The northern part of the area is mostly uh, Buddhist origin people, and the, the way of livelihood is pretty much influenced by the religious uh, belief of you know like compassion, coexistence like that, and that is, uh, in many cases, uh, have been very supportive in conservation. Yeah, I can see how if uh, compassion and, and and peacefulness is part of your religion, then you know it's easier to to. To promote conservation, it's easier to take care of the species around you. Rinzen got his start in conservation in a unique way, one that most people never get to experience in a lifetime. So you're one of the few people who have seen a snow leopard in the wild. Can you tell me about it? For many people, you know, they start career because they don't see the species they want to work in. In my case, you know, I saw it first and then I started working on a snow leopard. And so so where did you see one or how? So the first one I saw in uh, 2006, very close to Nepal-China border. I was just walking along the base of the cliff and down in the ravine. There were two animals, very mysterious animals that I have never seen before. And then I shouted quite loud and tried to, you know, pick some stone and try to throw at them. But they were quite far, you know, and then like I shout really loud and then they just climb up the cliff. And and and, and then I realized, OK, this is snow leopard, you know. You know, snow leopards are such amazing, beautiful animals. But I can imagine that if you do run into one in the wild, your first instinct is to grab a rock and drive it away because you're like, oh, God, you don't want to get eaten yeah. by a predator. Because uh, <laughs> I, I had the exact same experience recently with a, with a mountain lion near my home where uh, I'd never yeah. seen one outdoors. And then I saw one and was like, wow, that's so amazing. And then was actually pretty scared also. I was like, oh, I need a big stick. I need to make a lot of noise. I need to make sure I don't scare it, you know, because yeah. it's like, oh, that's so beautiful. But then you're also like, oh, God, I really don't want to get eaten. <laughs> of course, like, you know, like when you see something like uh, that you have never seen before, of course, you know, like the heartbeat goes really high and you want to do something that you don't know what you are doing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, uh, you know, earlier this season, I interviewed uh, Shafkat Hussein, a Pakistani conservationist, and he spent 20 years working with snow leopards and he's never seen one. And then you get to see one before you even started your work in conservation. <laughs> that is, that is ironic, you know, that was the starting step. Hmm. So, so seeing those snow leopards is part of what set you on a path to study conservation? Exactly. When I saw one live in the field, my curiosity level really, like, you know, it was just on its peak. So I started asking more about it during that trip and I became more fascinated to it. Uh, and then in 2007, I joined Institute of Forestry. So that was the, basically a beginning step. Rinzen's work with the nonprofit Third Pole Conservancy focuses on putting the power in the hands of local people. Can you define what community-based conservation is and, and what does that mean in the Humla region? So in Humla, we are pioneering uh, the conservation initiative for the first time. There will be no export coming from outside. So this will be a initiative led by local 
with the local participation. We want to involve our rural municipality. We want to uh, develop and promote local citizen scientists. We want to strengthen capacities of our community forest user group or community forest institution. We want to build institution in school. We want to build institution in the villages with the women so that we can mobilize a different sect of the community bodies at a time, you know, for a common goal, which is biodiversity conservation and livelihood. What does that actually look like? How can people improve their livelihood by aiding conservation? So, for example, very simple, and I'll just give you a very simple logic. When I was a kid, I was a walk two hours to the forest and collect fuel oil. Now, this is no more possible because the forest we used to go when I was kids in early 2000 is all gone now. There's no forest anymore. Livelihood is not always about earning money. You know, it is also about access to resources. How is Humla being affected by climate change? So when we look at the impact of climate change, I think it's everywhere. And Humla is also one of them impacted. So one of the like like very simple terms to explain climate change Numla is a disappearing snow cap, drying out water sources. These are quite the visible uh, forms, you know, that I what I observed back in 2000 is no more now. So you're saying that the glaciers that you saw 20 years ago no longer exist and that's drying up the water for some of the villages? Exactly. In early 2000, you know, like we are around three months in the winter, we have a snowfall. So not at once, you know, like... Slowly and slowly. But right now, it's really hard to predict the snowfall in the, even in the winter. Sometimes, like, there's a heavy snowfall in the early spring. And there is no snow at all in the winter. And in our areas, in the mountains, where the farming are pretty much depending on the winter snow and the monsoon, right? So when we don't have a snowfall in the winter, that already impact a lot in our farming practices. Because the winter snow work as a water reservoir. You know, like it provides the irrigation that we need to our field. And when we don't get that snow that we used to get in those days, and the lands are already so dry, and then like uh, th- then comes the monsoon, which is also it's very hard to predict. You know, there's no pattern to it. And that is already like causing more devastation, you know, the floods, landslide. The other thing is, you know, when there are no more, like I think like most of the Water sources, especially the spring water, are linked to the snowfall or snow or the glacier in the mountain. When they disappear, these water sources are also drying up. And so how do you uh, enlist the local community to help? That's why like, we are doing you know, multiple things at a time. First thing is we are doing an education program. You know, this education program is not just focused on a specific group. This focuses on all level of community people. We are doing with the general public through our conservation podcast and radio program that we are starting very soon. So we have a multi-phase uh, education and outreach program rolling on. Uh, like basically we share about conservation issues or we share about conservation knowledge with the community. The second thing is our biodiversity documentation is going on, like the core scientific part, what we have what we can protect, you know, what we had in the past, how much of it we have lost and what we must do to restore it. With that big question, we are doing a biodiversity survey. And third part is while doing this, we want to involve community people. So that is, you know, capacity building and institutional strengthening. Otherwise, like we continue the traditional institution which are already in the society. We are already here and we provide training to build their capacity and we help them with the fundraising and our grant and other stuff. So of this multi-phased approach to community-based conservation, what are you most proud of? 
As a conservation biologist, you know, it's always fun doing research and training people for monitoring. You know, this is always fun because people find it very interesting. They get chance to play or learn about new equipments, you know, new methods. That means that you you truly care about the the community-based approach when you actually prefer educating, you know, local folks about the projects rather than doing the actual projects. That's cool. Global recognition has helped Rinzen shape his vision of future conservation success. When you won the Rolex Awards for Enterprise, how, how did that feel to win the award? It was hard to believe you know, that I, I was one of the winners, you know, because among uh, among the top uh, conservationists, among like among the most uh, well-known scientists globally, to compete and to be one of the winners, it's, it's a great feeling. And when Rolex awarded me, I think that was one of the biggest moments in life because to to get the Rolex award means, you know, like to have the recognition of the work globally. Yes, several of the other Rolex Awards for Enterprise recipients that I've interviewed mentioned the exact same feeling being embraced by the global community and and. And really just having somebody tell them that, that the work that they're doing is, is worthwhile. Like, I can see how that's uh, pretty satisfying. Exactly, exactly. It feels really great, you know, like uh, the appreciated the approach we are taking, I'm taking, you know, like and, and, and the, in the vision for Humla and for the Trans Himalaya. And so how has uh, receiving the award affected your work? You are able to establish your own recognition. You know, people recognize he's doing something unique that also has the potential to grow. And that is something that... I can proudly share with my community and people also have appreciated this a lot. Since you won the Rolex Awards for Enterprise, have you managed to connect with any of the other award winners? I'm more closely working with Dr. Rodney Jackson, so who was uh, one of the Rolex laureate in uh, late 70s, who won the award for Snow Leopard Oak in Nepal. So he was the one who started Snow Leopard in the wild for the first time. That's amazing. And, and is he still working in the same field? Yeah, he's still working and he's mentoring me. So he was mentoring me before I got the Rolex, actually. You know, like we have been working together for a long time. He's mostly involved with training next generation of conservation leaders uh, like myself. So I've been receiving a very active mentoring from him. So in the way that he's mentored you, you know, how do you hope to, to mentor the next generation? Like, how do you see the next generation continuing the work that you're working on? First of all, you know, like uh, raising interest and, and raising the knowledge level is very important. Right now, like we have a very diverse team that, you know, I'm trying to motivate and trying to inspire as much as possible. Do you think that this community-based approach to conservation is is a good approach for, for other places in the world? Yeah, I believe our org is replicable and we will be able to meet all the scientific standards that uh, global scientific community needs to be replicated. When we empower local communities, when we train them, when we lead our own path, maybe somehow it's very supportive in building resilient communities. It will also be supportive to promote the community that is not always dependent on external sources. You know, that is our long-term vision. Is that ultimately what success looks like for you? Like uh, success would be the community being able to sustain its own conservation efforts? Yeah, that is our vision. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who's interested in doing the same kind of work? The most important thing is uh, passion, determination, and persistence, even in the extreme condition. 
So we want more of the people who doesn't just look for the money, but we have a passion to continue conservation, you know, as, as a part of the ecosystem, not just human ecosystem, but also natural ecosystem. What advice would you give to the average person on how they can help keep the planet perpetual? Every individual effort matters. We have to be very wise and using everything, whether it's water or fuel or anything. You know, we have to act in a way uh, that we can and every individual contribution will be supportive in a global campaign towards, you know, like uh, building a better planet. That was conservation biologist Rinzen Funzak Lama. I'm Alex Arnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe and leave a review to help other listeners find it. On the next episode, I'll be joined by Felix Brooks Church, a social entrepreneur working to end malnutrition in Tanzania. And if you liked this episode, check out the first episode of season two, where we spoke with Shafkat Hussein and Brad Norman, each working to protect flagship species in their local communities. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the next generation of environmental innovators at rolex.org.